Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Listeners, I feel I should set this episode in context for you because I know many of you listen to these shows long after they were initially recorded. The UK has been in lockdown for two days now as we, like nations worldwide, grapple with the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm sure many of you are valiantly keeping the comms show on the road while adjusting to social distancing and self-isolation. There is no doubt that our organisations need us now more than ever. If you're looking for help and guidance, we've created a special microsite with useful resources and new services to give IC teams a helping hand during this crisis. Whether you need trackable HTML emails or internal podcasts to keep your people connected. So I have a bit.ly link for you here, bit.ly forward slash stay connected 2020. And that link will also be in our show notes, which are on our website, abcomabcowm.co.uk. Now, if you work for a not-for-profit or public sector organisation, like the National Health Service here in the UK, please do not worry about affordability. If you need internal comms for key workers throughout this crisis, I have an amazing team of people ready and waiting to serve. The Internal Comms podcast will also be with you throughout this crisis. And today I am delighted to bring you Rachel Miller. In fact, I'm tempted to say that we could probably all benefit from an hour's conversation with Rachel at a time like this. A prolific blogger, educator and regular keynote speaker, Rachel is perhaps one of the most respected and listened to voices in internal communications. She's contributed to best-selling books, runs bespoke and hugely popular masterclasses, and is a fellow of both the Institute of Internal Communication and the Chartered Institute of Public Relations. She is perhaps best known for her consultancy work, but Rachel has also had in-house roles in the transport, pharmaceutical and finance sectors, to name but a few. We met in her new All Things I See headquarters in London, and that was on the 5th of March, 2020. The pandemic that's about to engulf us all is just hovering on the horizon. We do discuss this in a very, what can I say, Rachel Miller conversation. Warm, thoughtful, honest, at one point quite emotional. Listeners, it's my absolute joy to bring you Rachel Miller. So, Rachel, welcome back to the Internal Comms podcast. It's been over a year since we last met. Your episode was the very first one of the whole series. I look back on the stats of that, and I don't want to scare you, but the equivalent of eight people a day listen to that show or have listened to that show over the last 12 months, which is quite incredible. Still? Uh, Still. Wow. Yes. Goodness. So nearly 3,000 people in just 12 months, which I think probably shows the growing importance and interest in IC, which is Mm. wonderful. I'm just interested to know what's happened over the last 12 months or so. 
well, last time we met, it was it was December 2018 when we recorded and we were in my shed quarters. We were yes. in my office in my back garden and I've upgraded. So we are now in the All Things I See hub. Over the past year, I have opened my very own space, which has been a dream of mine for years. I had a secret board on Pinterest and five <laughs> years ago, I pinned an image of a big teal painted wall. I love teal, my, my brand colour. But I didn't know what that space would be. But I had an image in my head of I wanted to have a space for internal comms and for internal comms practitioners to come with a big teal wall. And here we are five years later from pinning that image. It's manifested itself into the All Things I See hub, which is the home of my client work. It's the home of my masterclasses. And it's a space which we, people come to and it's confidential. And you came in and said it felt homely, which is just the biggest, you know, loveliest thing to say for me the, the biggest compliment because I've designed it with internal comms professionals in mind we're surrounded by books you've seen I've got yes. bookshelves in there and, and in, in the second room and in this first room behind us are loads of photographs on the wall of internal comms practitioners that I've worked with so I've now trained 927 wow internal comms professionals since June 2016 which is a big number that's I'm a proud. really big number I'm really proud of that so What's happened in the past 12 months is I now have a space for all of that work where people can come and have a confidential environment to work with me. And it was scary. It was scary <laughs> to open it. I've learned, I learned a lot. I had five months of negotiating with a previous office space, which I thought was going to be the home of my teal wall. And it was very stressful. And for a variety of reasons, it just didn't work out. And I walked away from it in September so I spent a lot of time, money and effort imagining this space and visualising how it could be. And then I had to make a really difficult choice in mm. September 2019 and listen to my gut, gut instinct, which was, this isn't the right place for you. So I walked away from it, having spent time, money and effort and, and all those dreams. And then this place revealed itself to me. I, I asked for help. I, I got in touch with letting agents. And this place was just coming to the market that week. So it fell into place. So I've learned a lot in the past 12 months. Um, so other things got put on the back burner. Like when we met, we were talking about online masterclasses. Yes. And creating a physical space very much dominated 2019 for me. So 2020 is embedding here. And then I've been working in the background on online masterclasses. So now for me, it's bringing those to the fore and getting the time and effort invested in that space as well yes. as this space. So lots going on, but I'm, I'm happy. I'm so happy to have a teal wall, two teal walls, in fact, now in two rooms, and to see people being in this space and to see them learning and being open to having confidential conversations and then leaving here and being everything they need to be in their super visible roles, having looked after them here. It feels fantastic to set them up for success and send them on their way out the door with stationery <laughs> and hopefully more confidence and, and knowledge about internal comms. So yeah, I'm happy. I'm good. Well, congratulations, because what I love about it is it's a pure, perfect extension of you and your brand and what you stand for. You walk in and you know immediately, this is all things I see. As you say, from the stationery to the colours, the way you've laid out the furniture, everything. So it perfectly fits and it feels wonderful. I think it's one of those spaces where your shoulders drop slightly when you walk in. 
and that's exactly what you want, isn't it? When there's tissues in both rooms, because (laughs) because when people come here, particularly, you know, if you're very senior, when I do comms director masterminds, you're very senior and you're often quite stressed. So, and then people are quite emotional. So if you can come in and your shoulders drop and you Mm. know you can cry and it's a safe space, I'm very grateful that people trust me. I'm very grateful that they feel able to be honest with me and vulnerable with me. And then we put them back together. <laughs> you know, we work with them, put them back together and then send them back out on their way. Now, when we last spoke, we covered quite a few big topics. And I thought a way into some topics this time around might be a blog that you wrote at the end of last year where you asked IC pros what they were struggling with or they had been struggling with in 2019. One of the things that was raised in that blog was how do we help leaders really understand the true value of internal comms? And I just wondered whether you've got any reflections on why we're still struggling to get leaders to understand its true value and where people might start if they feel they're in an organisation where internal communication is still a little bit the postmaster general or the make it pretty committee of the comms world. It was described to me yesterday by a client as we're the ugly duckling. I said, really? You really feel like the ugly duckling? I think it's a, it's a, an internal problem for internal communicators and I don't know why, because for me, you know, if you look at the Institute of Internal Communication, they talk about the need for us to be evidence-based decision makers. And, and for me, in the work that I do, I, I always look at how can I help people be evidence-based decision makers? So when you're trying to influence or negotiate with stakeholders, where's your evidence? And it goes back to measurement. It goes back to really understanding what you're here to do. And I think One of the issues I think people have in helping leaders understand the value is they're not consistent in what they say. So I analyse a lot of internal comms in organisations and I start with what they say about themselves as a team. I start with your strategy or I start with your section of the internet and I look at how do you talk about internal communication Mm. as an individual and as a team and therefore you know, when you're working with stakeholders, what is it that you say? And I find time and time again that people can't articulate it. There's right. no consistency, there's no clarity, there's no certainty. And if you don't have that, then you can't be evidence-based decision makers. You can't help leaders understand the true value because you don't have the right words. Right. So as a profession of communicators, to not have the right words is, is mind-boggling, really. So my advice always is... Do your homework as an individual and as a team to really articulate what are we here to do? What's the purpose of internal communication in our organisation? What does good look like? And if you can't answer that, Mm. what does bad look like? Right, okay. And then start from there because where you don't have that clarity, where you don't have that consistency, you don't have that certainty, of course you can't have conversations with leaders because depending on who they talk to inside your team depends on what answer they get. It's so interesting. And I see that so often. Yes, yes. I mean, literally over the last, I think, six weeks, I've had at least two conversations with clients where we came to the conclusion that the starting point had to be a vision for them as a team, a charter or a set of principles Mm -hmm. or a, a guiding mission, if you like, for their team. They had to start there in order to then go further and talk to other people it's quite interesting you know I believe what happens inside is reflected outside and as internal communicators that starts with you as an individual as a team so what is happening what's the charter for you you know what's the vision for you what's the aspiration and I think where it doesn't help is where people 
confuse internal communication and internal communications. There's real, there's real muddied water, and it's in my mind, it's really straightforward. Okay, go go for it, Rachel, <laughs> because we are going to put this debate to bed. What's okay. the difference between having the S and not having the S? So, in my mind, internal communication is the overarching way that a company communicates. And that could be things outside of your control. I don't like the word control, but as an internal communicator, you can't control how a line manager talks with their team, for example. And then internal communications is the tools, methodology, channels, tactics. So internal communication is overarching and then internal communications is the detail. It's the channels. And when I... I've blogged about this a number of times and it's a, <laughs> it's a drum that I bang <laughs> fairly regularly because there's a difference. And when you're measuring internal communication, often we ask people about the overarching way the company communicates, so internal communication, and then we make decisions about our channels. So we're often not asking the right questions to measure the right things. So we're right. asking how does internal communication happen and then we take that feedback to change our intranet. and that doesn't work it doesn't work for me so I think you have to separate them out Mm. and you have to be very clear in terms of for our line managers particularly or people managers or leaders this is what we expect from you in the way you communicate Mm. and this is what you can expect from us in terms of advice and guidance strategic counsel and advice you know trusted advisors so when I, I blogged about this a while ago and there were some comments that came through on Twitter. So Kate Jones, for example, said, yes. there's a reason why it's the Institute of Internal Communication, yes. not Internal Communications. And I thought, that's exactly it. You know, right. If we're not exactly sure what we mean when we talk about internal communication versus internal communications, <laughs> you know, we don't help ourselves. So my advice would be clarify it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what you mean when you talk about internal communication? Do you know what you mean when you talk about internal communications in your organisation? Mm-hmm. Then you've got some chance of measuring. So mainly when we're talking to leaders, we're talking about internal communication. Yes. We're talking about the overarching way the organisation is communicating mm-hmm. with itself, essentially. Yes, yeah. I think so. Because then, you know, the purpose of internal comms is creating a shared understanding and shared meaning. And then their employees can align themselves with your company's purpose. So the whole reason we exist is to help our employees understand how they fit in, how Mm. their role is helping us cure more patients, transport more people, sell more widgets. And that's the sole key focus for us. Mm. When I'm analysing an organisation's internal comms, I want to see that correlation between what a comms team are doing and what the business strategy is. Yes. Because if there's no joined up thinking there, then it feels like internal communication as as a function is a nice to have. Yes. Not a need yes. to have. Yeah. And what a privilege for us, you know? What yes. a privilege for us to be right at the heart of <clears throat> those conversations and right at the heart of the way a business works. Mm. Love it. Mm. <laughs> so we've cleared up that disparity between those two words. Not that long ago, the State of the Sector 2020 came out and 45, 50% of communication professionals were saying that the biggest obstacle at the moment inside their organisation, and I have to use this phrase because it's the phrase that keeps being used, cutting through the noise. That's the big problem. And in your blog, Simon Munger says, cutting through the noise, simplifying comms and the channel's landscape, which is currently, he's saying, a bit of a wild garden, (laughs) is his biggest challenge. So again, I'm interested in, is it true? Are our organisations becoming noisier? Is it just perception? And if so, what do we do to either reduce that noise or cut through it? So when I think about noise, I refer back to the origin of, of noise. It's from the Shannon and Weaver model from the 40s, which denotes how a telephone call happened. 
And and the words in there about, you know, channel, receiver, destination, noise referred to a crackly line. So most, I, I think of that as the mother of all comms models. <laughs> most comms models come out of there and basically the language. And the language of noise originally was, you know, a cross line or a crackly line. So the message couldn't get from A to B. Right. So if we think about that from an organisational communication context, then yes, there is a lot of noise and there are lots of things that disrupt the flow of communication particularly. So that model got updated in the 80s, I think it was, to add in a feedback loop because it was very much fixed, linear, one-way communication. Right. And then the actual theory got updated to reflect the fact it's now two-way, which is great. But the noise bit has always been there for us as internal communicators. There is always a barrier or blocker to effective communication happening so in terms of noise I think of it through two lenses it's understanding you know what is stopping communication from happening could be our channels it could be mixed messages it could be that there's just not clarity around what's being communicated or actually it could be that there's just too much yes and we don't help ourselves so I think when we're looking at an organization and the way it communicates I ask my clients all the time, give me an editorial calendar, you know, what's coming up? And I don't want to see what's just coming up for the comms department. And and I want to understand what's going on in the rest of the organisation. Yes. What are the key milestones? What are the key announcements, events that are happening that, and I know you're talking to Bill, I know you're interviewing <laughs> Bill Quirk. You're very tempted to come and sit in the <laughs> Come and sit in the corner. And, A couple yeah. of people have said they're paid to watch me interview him. <laughs> no Love pressure Bill. then. No pressure. No. <laughs> um, and in you know Bill's book, Making the Connections, you know, to, in 2008, he talked about you know, the helicopter view and have this overarching view of an, an air traffic control of how conversations happen and having that overarching visibility. And I'm a real believer in that because... I think our role is to understand all the noise that's happening in the organisation and understand what are the conversations and announcements from HR or whoever which will jar with a timeline or something that we're planning. Right. If we're not listening, if we're not tapped into the noise and we're merrily, you know, planning certain things, then of course it won't cut through. I think now, particularly with transparent communication, you know, co-created content, social media, for example, it's not just us creating the noise and it's not just functions creating noise. So it is noisier, but to cut through and to help your communication stand out is our business to know our business. You need to understand how people communicate. You need to understand the channels they rely on. You need to understand the source of truth in your organisation. Mm, because mm. if there's a one place whether it's their people managers or their intranet or enterprise social network, whatever it might be, whatever the trusted source of truth is, for me, that's the filter of noise. That's the filter where if people know that's where they go to get credible, accurate, reliable information, it filters out the rest of the noise and you focus in. So all of that for me is around investigating and knowing your business, knowing your employees in a really um, a proper way, you know, being mm-hmm. in their shoes and really understanding how, if we want to cut through, ask them, listen mm. to them. Yes. <laughs> what do you rely on? What do you trust? I mean, every, as we're recording this, we are, COVID-19 is everywhere. We are, yes. we, we aren't sure whether to shake hands or hug. Where exactly. <laughs> or should, we, should we not touch at all? We had a hug. We had a hug. We, we risked it. <laughs> <laughs> we did risk it. But, you know, that the conversations I'm having with clients over the last week has been around, how do you cut through? How do you make sure your employees get the accurate, credible, reliable information about their health and about Mm. the risks. And 
if there's ever a time to really understand your business and know how to cut through the noise, it's in crisis or situations like this. Yes. So this isn't a, we'll figure it out at some point in time. It's mm. never too late to really understand how does my business work? How does information flow and how does communication happen? It, it's, it's interesting to me because my reflection on this is that what can happen inside an organisation is they've got a channel that does cut through the noise when it's especially used in a crisis or urgent situation, high priority red flag messages. And then often what they do is think, oh, that works. And they overuse it. Mm. Or they've got a they've got a wonderful channel which with very rich content that people enjoy reading. Maybe they read in their own time. If it's if it's printed, it's maybe even delivered to home. And again, they think, oh, that works. So let's stuff everything in it and it becomes a victim of its own success. So part of this also, is, I guess, is about making sure that you pick the right medium and the message for the right target audience as well, isn't it? Yeah. We're, we're very, we traditionally have been quite bad at the, the old kind of dear colleague send to all approach, haven't we, I oh, guess? Oh, gosh, really. <laughs> I, think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think we have the tendency to saturate something that we think is really working. Mm. And the reason it's probably working is because it's short, sharp, glanceable content in real time. And then if you saturate it with, and another thing, just yes. add loads of stuff in, the quality goes down. And often the you know, feedback from employees is that something that was actually quite unique because it was short, sharp, glanceable content is now long and wordy like everything else. So yes. I think you're right. I think it's constantly keeping an eye on how are we communicating? What channels are we using? What's working? What's not working? And then adjusting and readjusting yes. and being brave enough. I, I use a channels matrix constantly. I have a, a workbook that's in front of us. I have a workbook that I give out in all my masterclasses and I encourage people to map out their channels and, and it's a table. It's called a matrix. But it's, <laughs> it's a table. And what I'm looking for when I'm analyzing the way a company communicates is if you have similar channels same frequency, same purpose, same target audience, you know, group of employees that you're trying to communicate with, then do you really need all of those channels? And when you add in shadow comms, so unofficial ways of communicating, which might be WhatsApp or it might be a, a departmental newsletter, if you're adding in all those channels into a channels matrix, then there's a lot of noise there. Mm. I think for, for me, what good looks like is understanding the purpose of each channel. Yes. How is it earning? It's for the time, money and effort we're investing in each particular channel. Is it working hard enough? And actually, if it's not, do we need to retire one? Yes, yes. So when yes. clients say to me, oh, we've got a new channel, I, I often say, oh, what did you retire? Yes. Oh, very good question. And the answer normally is, oh, oh, no, but we didn't. I'm like, okay, so it's a bit noisier now <laughs> in yeah. the organisation. So for me, what good internal comms looks like is a really clear picture of these are the channels that we are investing in. The, this is their purpose. This is whether they're, you know, one way or two way. I need that good mix and a good balance. Don't just add more and more and more in and saturate the the conversation space, really, and, and, and saturate inboxes often. You said such an important thing there, which is around having a clear objective for each channel. Because I get a little bit frustrated when I see surveys that try to measure the effectiveness of channels 
in a very general way. Mm. And my argument always is you only measure effectiveness against the purpose or objective of the channel. Being very clear about your intention for each one and what success looks like for each one, I think is so important, isn't it? So before you start, mm-hmm. what are you trying to achieve? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And particularly if you're asking for budget, you know? Right. In my experience, if you the clearer you are with the purpose of each channel, the easier it is to argue for budget. So I have various versions of channels matrices where I have one which is for the organisation, where it helps people understand why we say no. Right. Which is a constant topic in my masterclasses. <laughs> How do we say no? And for me, it's back to being evidence-based decision makers mm, mm. You know, here's your evidence we're really bad at showing our workings we're really ah. we just say no and we and if you have a channels matrix where you've got it all mapped out you've got your own another version which is here's the channel here's the purpose here's how much resource it takes in our team to make this channel work here's how much it costs for example mm, mm. just having it all mapped out is just commercially it's good business sense to do that we don't often do that. We don't often think about mapping out channels in that way. And then when we come round to budget time and we have to cut, you have to cut a channel. You, you're looking at evidence and measurement, like, well, how many clicks has it got? And mm. we're back into output territory, in case yeah. we're not into outcomes, <laughs> which I know is a topic we're both very passionate about. Um, but for me, it is about having the evidence of why you're saying no, why you're pushing back, why you're making decisions over one channel over the, over the other. Show your workings out. Because in your head often, but you obviously often haven't written it down to say, this is what our channel suite looks like, for example, and, and these are the ones that we value above all others. You know, if you've got a hierarchy of channels, mm. which are the ones that if we have to cut our budget, we would absolutely ring fence and say, hands off. This is the most valuable way that our employees communicate with us. It's a good two-way channel, for example. I love the idea of showing you're working out. You're absolutely right. I think we feel a pressure to go in and say, da-da, the answer is 3.5 or <laughs> the answer is this yeah. internet yeah. and not say, let me show you the journey, the evidence, the research I've done, the options I've looked at potentially yeah. and why A and B don't really work, but we did consider them. We tested them perhaps. So mm-hmm. I really like I really like that approach. So let's step back a little bit and look at the real big picture here in terms of the UK workforce. We're seeing the gig economy probably grow in importance and certainly we're talking about it more. And that poses the question about the remote workforce. Now, I always think of remoteness, there's many different ways that you can be remote from an organisation. So maybe we'll dig into what we really mean by that and talk about terminology a bit. But I'm interested in whether through your masterclasses and your training, you're noticing that people are worrying more about this remote workforce, if that's rising up the gender. And then, of course, how do we tackle that problem? So I think it's a conversation that we have always had in internal comms. I am noticing it more in masterclasses. People often share a problem and the problem can be, I had someone from an oil and gas organisation who said, I just can't figure out how we communicate with them, where people who would go on to an oil rig and they'd be there for a couple of weeks and then they'd be off shift for a couple of weeks at home and they were trying to find the best way to communicate with them because when they're in a car heading to a helicopter pad to then get on a helicopter and go to an oil rig, they're kind of a captive audience. Yes. But that is probably not the right time to no. have a back of a you know headrest video <laughs> going on going, here's the company strategy update. I mean, you're good, but I don't think it's right. Um, and one of the things that uh, Jenny Field talked about in her remote workers research was around the third space, 
where you have, you know, your workplace and you have your home and you have the third space, which is typically breakout areas in mess rooms, for example. And I have always used breakout rooms and mess rooms and, and depots, particularly for during my, my tenure in-house career, to communicate with our people where there would be digital signage or posters, you know, yes. and mug cupboards. And we've always used that space. So I think it's a really interesting piece of research. If you If people haven't checked it out, do... In terms of how communicators are trying to reach their employees, it's a perennial problem. It's not impossible. Mm. I don't believe anyone is that hard to reach, apart from the oil rig <laughs> people, which just baffles me, and I probably need to give it some proper attention, um, and I could come up with something. But it's about being traditional. Right. Very often it's about, you know, I spent four and a half years in the railway, and I didn't have people on devices. I had them driving trains, and I didn't want them on devices because no. they were driving trains. Exactly. So I had to be very traditional in the way that we communicated and it was things sent home and it was things in mess rooms. I think what we're seeing now with the gig economy and remote workers and particularly the last couple of weeks and talking about COVID-19, conversations I've had with my clients are how can we reach people and create virtual events where they are? So if they're working at home, how do we do town halls? How do we use technology particularly to bring people together? And I think you can be remote in terms of location, but also remote in terms of your emotional... Exactly. You know, how, how engaged you are with an organisation. There's a difference between role engagement and organisational engagement. And I believe you can be you know, very engaged with your role as a, a, a paramedic, for example. You might love being a paramedic, but it doesn't matter to you whether that's a London Ambulance Service or Edinburgh Ambulance Service. So I think remote workers for me is, is kind of layers there I agree lots of levels there and there's not a one-size-fits-all approach where you say people are working at home you know two days a week three days a week how you are as a people manager changes and shifts because you're trying to manage people that you don't see face to face yes and you don't spend time with every single day day in day out in a single workplace so that has has, has really impacted internal comms yes you need to yes. be more creative you need to come up with different solutions there's not a one-size-fits-all approach for the whole organization anymore never really was but I think with the rise of remote workers mm. you need to have variety that's where your channels come in you need to have variety to say do we have a really good mechanism for our people to feel connected wherever they are whether mm. they're on a shop floor or whether they're on an oil rig or wherever they are so they don't feel remote so it's the emotional side as well, I think, for me. Mm. And sometimes you, know, you could be in a retail environment and on the shop floor and you can feel like I might as well be working at home. I don't feel connected to this organisation, to my peers, to my line manager. I don't see them enough. So we don't talk so much about that in internal comms. And I think we should... They're, they're the conversations that I have in masterclasses around I feel like there's parts of the organisation that we're not working with effectively. Mm. Or we're rolling out a new channel and it's really great for 50% of our organisation. But we're really aware that for the other 50%, it's not going to work for them. Yes, yes. Do you think we should just carry on anyway? Mm. So I'm having lots of conversations like that and I don't know the answer. It's interesting, though, that you make that distinction between engagement with my job and maybe even my local team, maybe my store or my depot, and engagement with the organisation. And, and Kevin Ruck made that distinction when I interviewed him. Yeah. And he said, actually, there's good evidence to show that when engagement is low with your organisation, that matters actually more in some ways, which I thought was quite interesting, that that can have a disproportionate effect. Because we tend to think of people leaving 
their managers when they leave their organisations. But I think we're probably moving into a different age where the role of line managers are probably changing as work becomes a thing we do rather than a place we go. Not for everyone. But yeah, I think that's, that's, very, that's very interesting. And one of the re- pieces of research I saw quite recently was saying that with virtual working, so for example, video conferencing, everyone gets on a line, the work can get done But what doesn't happen is the conversation as people sort of trail off to get a to go to the lifts or get a coffee or stand around the water cooler. Mm -hmm. And that communication is actually vital. I remember a CEO saying to me, it all goes well in the room, Katie, in the boardroom, but it all falls apart as soon as they're standing in the corridor. And that's the conversation (laughs) I can't hear. And they're the good ones, right? They're they're the juicy conversations and the real connections. But you're right. What's missing is that those nuance of conversations in the corridor and the checking in with each other in person because everyone's just sitting on mute waiting for this thing to start yes yeah you're right we'll, we'll, we'll see more of this we'll see we will. more remote workers we'll see more freelancers particularly and some of the work that, that I do is with comms consultants and we constantly have conversations about loneliness where people feel quite remote because they are working for different organisations. They might be going in to be doing contracts but feel quite remote from the comms team because Mm -hmm. they're viewed quite differently because Ah. they're a consultant. Um, Or they're working from home, you know, doing desk-based research for, for clients and they feel really lonely. So they feel like remote workers in that sense. So that really interests me. I have lots of conversations about that and how do you combat loneliness when you are an independent practitioner who is going into organisations or working in in your own space. So Mm. I think there's various strands of what it means to be remote, I think, within internal comms. Mm. Your advice in that situation to people, presumably that's when it's really important, things like mentoring groups, professional bodies, and your own personal networking, I guess, in that situation becomes really important. Yeah, absolutely. So I have an alumni group for my masterclasses on LinkedIn. So I connect people who've been to my training courses so they can carry on the conversations and I know that lots of independent practitioners have then set up their own whatsapp groups and set up their own little splinter groups which is fabulous because they've made the connection they've met with like-minded people who understand the work they do who understand that you're very visible and you can't be seen to ask for help if you're being paid as a consultant you can't go on LinkedIn and go mm. I need to write a strategy for a client yes. you've got a good template <laughs> for example you can't really do that um, so I think that yeah, that, that network and that ability to ask questions and meet with other people is really, really important. I've mm. certainly benefited from that in, in my career in having a good network around me. And as when I started, I only knew one other comms consultant. And now seven years into running all things I see, I have a really strong network of independent practitioners where we can send paragraphs to each other, which you have no context and just say, does this make sense? Yeah, so how interesting. <laughs> is this yeah. all right? And then... You need that. We talked about this on on the last podcast about asking for help, you know, and, and if you're working remotely, if you're working as an independent practitioner, you still need to ask for help. Yes. But you don't have the luxury of a team around you often that you can just go, can you just read this? Is yes. this grammar all right? Does it make sense? So your network really comes into its own there. Mm, mm. It's so interesting, actually. I've just had a light bulb moment talking to Keith Lewis at Zurich about how he's encouraging the professionals in that organisation to think about their personal brand and communicate about what they know, regardless of insurance, just what they know professionally. Mm. And that might be something we see more of in the future, where people coming into the workplace are doing 
what I read in the Harvard Business Review, tours of duty. You know you're not going to have them for that long. (laughs) You know, they're going to come in, they're going to go. But they want to leave with more than they knew. How are we going to be helping professionals develop, learn from each other? That could be quite an interesting area in the future. I I think part of that for me is knowledge management. So I, I... I'm a guest speaker on the IOIC Masters in Internal Comms course. I love love doing that. I've done that for the last five or six years, I think. And the module that I teach is knowledge management. So you're looking at the application of, you know, what do we know as an organisation and what do we share as an organisation? And how do we retain the knowledge when people leave? You know, if they've done their tour of duty and they're off, yes. how do we capture that knowledge in a way that feeds into the culture of the organisation? And we don't often talk in internal comms about knowledge management, but you know, at a master's level, it's being taught because it's, it's hugely important. There's a, a quote from the old CEO of uh, Hewlett Packard who said, if HP knew what HP knows, we'd be three times more productive. And I love that because you can just see that actually it's spot on. Often that's where enterprise social networks are really coming to their own because you're unlocking previously invisible conversations and people and ideas and you're surfacing it. It's knowledge management. So you can see what you know as an organisation where people aren't using it and they're locking in because you know, knowledge is power and we're not sharing our thinking and working out loud and collaborating. We lose that knowledge as an organisation. We You can't tap into it because you can't see it. Yes. It's still closed. So for me, knowledge management and internal comms go hand in hand. And part of that is how do you nurture those people? How do you encourage the people to, particularly if they're working the way you've described, so the knowledge stays within the organisation. Yes. Things like, you know, when you've got amazing midwives who leave the NHS, who've got years of experience, mm. how mm. do you capture that? How, yes. do you, how do you feed that knowledge through to your younger generations, perhaps, where they can learn? this? You won't find this in a textbook, but this is how we This work. is what really happens. Yeah, yeah. This, is how, this is what we do. For me, that's a comms thing, you know? Yes. This, this is, the mindset is how do we capture that knowledge in a way that is useful and shareable? Mm. And that's back to internal communication, the overarching way your company communicates and shares knowledge. Yes, absolutely. It also plays into that age-old problem that leadership teams always grapple with in large organisations, which is the silo mentality, isn't it? Yeah. Where we've got, yes, this division works brilliantly and that division over there works brilliantly. They don't talk to each other. <laughs> Our customer's journey would be so much happier and we'd develop all these innovative products and services if only they did. And that is a perennial problem as well, actually, yeah. which needs solving. Absolutely. So in your blog about the challenges that people have been grappling with, the word narrative came up. So I think it was Menelie Gibbons that writes about the narrative. Everyone wants one, but no one really knows what one is. Now, I'm certainly noticing organisations wanting a far more strategic approach to content, which I think is brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I think it's difficult to have that without a strategic narrative. When you hear that phrase, what do you think of? Why would you want one? And then the big question, then how do you get there? How do you develop it? So for me, this is, so I use the Engage for Success enablers of engagement and I, I, I the strategic narrative is the story of your organisation, how they describe it, is where it's come from and where it's going. Mm-hmm. And I simplify it to that. And I, and I think the strategic narrative is the story of your organisation and that, and I, you can manifest that through visual timelines, for example. I love doing that. I've got a board on Pinterest, actually, of visual timelines. I'm a visual thinker. I love seeing milestones for organisations. In order for you to communicate change, for example, my advice always to clients is look back before you go forward. Yes. So I did this at London Overground. We had lots of, you know, 
had a new line to open, new tracks, new trains, new uniform, new colleagues, everything. And the organisation had been in existence for 18 months. And before we zoomed off with, here's all the big shiny things we're about to do, I may just pause, reflect, look back. And I published a timeline of key milestones that went back 18 months and said, I believe, you know, affirming behaviour. Yes. So you're well placed to do all the things that are ahead because look what we've already done. That's the strategic narrative. That's the story. Where we've come from, where we're we going. But where we've come from is often missed. Yes, yes. And we, we get so consumed with aspirations and visions of purpose, of how we need to be as an organisation. Mm. And actually a lot of that for me is about affirming behaviour of your employees, which is look how far we've come. Mm. Or look at the challenges that we've overcome. There will be more, but we can do this because we've done all these things already. So strategic narrative, to bring it to life for me, is about the words of your people. It's not just leaders saying, we believe we're going to be the best to whatever type of organisation we are. But it's really helping your employees understand that everyone has a role to play in this story. Yes. And even better if you can do it peer-to-peer, through their voices, through their eyes, where... It's not, you're not communicating at them and to mm, them, but mm. for them and with them. So good strategic narrative should be consistent and it should be actionable and it should be tangible where it shouldn't matter who I talk to in the organisation, you are saying the same story. You've got the same sense of what we're here to do as an organisation. Mm. I find that fascinating because there's often a moment when you're kind of trying to get under the skin of an organisation for the first time, or maybe you're auditing communications, and eventually you get to the CEO, maybe if you're lucky, the founding father or mother of the organisation, and you have a conversation about why the organisation initially was established back in 1872 or 1926 or last year. And that organisation was set up to serve a need. I mean, Mm. it was set up for a very specific purpose to solve somebody's problem. And you're right, over time, there's layers and layers of strategy that get added about margins and competitiveness and about geographical reach and all those wonderful things we have to do. But often, how interesting that actually bringing it back to the beginning of that that purpose, the reason you were there in the first place, that problem that you were seeking to solve as an insurance company or whatever it was, because, you know, it's true for those organisations as well. That forming part of the narrative, I can really imagine being quite powerful. Yeah, I think often it's forgotten and often Mm. we seek to reinvent the wheel. And actually, when you strip it right back to what are we here to do? What's the difference we're trying to make in the world? You've got the foundations of a great story. You've got the brilliant ingredients there. And I think I was at Mencap's office um, a couple of years ago and they've got a really fantastic visual timeline in there. their head office on Golden Lane in London. And it's so lovely because it's a really, really visual representation of who they are, how they work, what's important to them. And you can get a real sense of just the culture. You get a real sense of the way things are done and a real sense of what's important to them because they're looking back before they're going forward. You can just see it. And and as an employee, I think, if you're working in an organisation that has a really clear understanding of our story, Mm. then you know where you're going. Mm. You have certainty and you have, you have. Um, if it feels aspirational, if it feels intangible and if it feels like it's a story I don't identify with, that's when communication breaks down, that's when engagement breaks down because I've done that in focus groups where I've listened to employees and I've said, you know, what's the purpose of the organisation and what are you here to do? And you can see people thinking, oh, I think I should know that. <laughs> <laughs> or they give me an answer that I think that you've not read that somewhere. You don't intrinsically know that. It's not clear. That strategic narrative is not clear. It's not ingrained in the organisation. It's just, 
here's a paragraph that sounds good or we've got vision and mission and values and they you know yes about those yes and that's not it no that's not it that's not it no for me a good strategic narrative is your story where you've come from where you're going and it should be underpinned by things that don't change so ideally vision values mission we love words don't we there's so many (laughs) i had a day with a client i was trying to map out on a page what do you say about yourselves and we were trying to list it all out and there was so much and it didn't quite gel together so if you've never done that if people who are listening have never done that encourage you to do that and just look at map it all out what are Mm. the words that we say if you're trying to have a coherent story Mm. How are you getting in your own way through inconsistencies of approach in wording often or sentiment in terms of we need to be bold and brave and ambitious. And then we have another piece of the, the jigsaw puzzle or the, or the story that says we will cautiously find our way. <laughs> you know, they'll see that. You'll see there'll be disconnects. So do that as an exercise. Map it out and just mm. look at what is it we say about ourselves is there a consistent story? And if not, as you say, go back to the beginning. Mm. Go back mm. to what are we here to do? What's the what's the reason this business exists? Mm-hmm. There's, there's many things that spring to mind as you're answering that. I was thinking, so one of the questions I love asking, exactly that about, you know, what why does this organisation exist? And you're asking the front line of the organisation about the organisation's mission, vision or values. And then you ask, and they maybe they have learned it off the internet or a poster or a mug. Or, or a mug. <laughs> they look down at their lanyard and <laughs> flip it over. And then you say, wonderful. And what does that mean to you? Mm. And then... Then you get that slightly scared rabbit in the headlights look because like it means yeah. absolutely nothing because I don't le- use the word leverage or synergy or maximize my whatever <laughs> at well, all. So I think I think language I don't know how frustrated you get when you read a set of values on a wall on a poster used to be put up on posters not so much now and you, I always used to do that little trick of okay I'm going to cover up the name of the organization and see if those set of values would work for its biggest competitor and I almost always did it was almost like they were playing a me too game yeah that's so true I think you're right I think for me values to really make them resonate is they have to feel right and they have to be really applicable to that organization with all of its nuances with it with the purpose that it's, it's there to do and I think they're so samey mm. I judge a lot of industry awards and particularly if I'm looking at categories which refer to values I could cover the names up you're completely right there's, <laughs> there's very there's very rarely a set of values that I think wow that's really ambitious misguided for example um, Glenn Grayson from there uh, wrote for my blog a couple of years ago about their cultural vibes they don't call them values they call them cultural vibes massive crush on that brand I think the work that he's doing there is extraordinary his Twitter handle is no fun like work and the work they're doing there is it stands out because the language is completely appropriate mm. for that very young um, demographic largely female and they've really got it now their internal comms at Misguided are really spot on I think as a mm. as a a fan from afar, you know, seeing what they're doing because I I could figure out the brand from yes. the values of yes. from the cultural vibes. It would make sense that I look at that and think that makes sense that it's your organisation. Yes. I think you're right. I think very often they're just samey, samey. Mm. Jackie Leferve is my go-to from Magma Effect, is my go-to values expert. I keep bringing her back to my blog to share thoughts on values because values are really important for me in the way that I work and for many people many clients and many organizations then to bring them to life they have to be real they have to be understood 
if you can't understand them, you can't act on them. Mm, and mm. if it just feels like they're words on a wall, I was at an office yesterday and there was values on the wall and they looked great. And I asked the client whether the photographs of the people with them were stock photographs or her employees. And she said, no, they're our people. And I was so pleased to hear that. Wonderful. Because very often, and I wasn't expecting that to be the answer, to be completely honest with you, I was expecting her to say, oh, no, that would be too difficult. And they're stock images that kind of represent what we do. And I love the fact it was their people doing their thing yes. on the wall yes. with their values. Great. Yes. And the yes. trick is, how do you get, and the blog post Jackie wrote for me was, how do you, how, are the words on the walls your values? You know, how do you get them off the wall? And yes. behaviours and interactions. Yes. That's yes. the key bit. That's the key bit. I'm going to have to say, I'm, I'm working backwards with a client on that. So to, to, to get to that, what we're starting with is behaviours. So we're looking at real people who are their star performers. So the people they'd put in the cloning machine if we had one. Right? <laughs> that'd saying, be great. <laughs> what is it about, you know, John? Yeah. And they say, well, he does these things. I'm like, well, let's, let's list them all out. Mm. And then you get this long list. And we, we pick about three or four, maybe a few more people from different parts of the organisation that are the people that we'd put in the cloning machine. And then we look at what's common across the piece about those people in terms of their characteristics and then do they end up and they often do as a set of behavioral values but the wonderful thing about that is that as people are you know listing out the characteristics the attitudes the capabilities of that person they are thinking about what they do every day so when you finally get a set of values from that it's all built on real stories and it's easy to articulate what it means because you can pick a real example of it. I, I like that. I think I'm tempted to say that we don't want to clone our employees, though. We don't want them no, to that's true. be identikit versions. Yes. But I think having the behaviours that underpins, this is how we would like you to behave, but what you do and, yes. and the way that you do your work, I think as long as you're aligning with those behaviours is, is ideal. But I think... We need to not clone them into being, you know, robotic. Does that make sense? No, it totally does. And I think diversity is becoming more and more important inside of organisations. And I'm so pleased, finally, that we're not talking about diversity in terms of just what you can see mm -hmm. from the outside as well. Yeah. Um, so Finally. Finally. <laughs> so time. that's why the cloning machine wouldn't work, because yeah. you'd have to clone in difference. <laughs> and I don't know how you do that. It's a very, cl very clever cloning machine. So I'm going to ask you about a phrase, how did it land? But I did do some research on this. Mm. So you and I have both, I think, probably at some point in our lives, put a, a slide up that's a quote from an American journalist called Sidney Harris. Mm -hmm. And it says there are two words information and communication. These are often used interchangeably, but they signify quite different things. Information is giving out, communication is getting through. So in that context, can you tell me the words you've banned basically from every IC conversation? <laughs> so I love that quote, that works really well for me. And the reason it, it works is because I hate the phrase, how did it land? Or oh, we need to land this with employees. It's just the word land. I don't like it because in my mind, if information is giving out and communication is getting through, which I love that phrase from Sydney Harris, I've shared it in masterclasses for years because there is a difference. If you're talking about how did it land or we need to land this with employees, you're talking about information giving out. The focus for us as internal communicators should be, did it get through? And that's not just, did someone receive an email? It's did they understand it? No, do they, do they know it? Do they understand it? Are they going to act on it? 
And it needs to go deeper than if you're measuring internal comms and just in the sense of emails have gone out. Mm, mm, so what? Mm. So what's happened as a result? It's the mm. output. To shift to out, outcomes is the so what? So what's happened? Do they understand it? Do they act on it? Do they have any questions? And when you talk in terms of land, it's very fixed. It's very one way. And you can't communicate like that. You're in information territory, not communication territory. So as internal communicators... We need to shift into communication territory, which is if you're just talking about, I need to land this. Yes. It's not right. If you're asking, the only caveat there would be, how did it land in terms of, and then you go into digging into it. So how did it land? I want to know how it landed. But still, that just makes my teeth ache because 99% of the time when I hear that word, we need to land this or how did it land, it actually means information giving out yes it doesn't mean communication getting through so I I challenge it all the time and I did a masterclass on here a couple of weeks ago and it was the a couple of days after I'd blogged that it was a bit of a rant case <laughs> it was a bit of a rant I just I just it, I don't like it at all so I blogged it and then we had there was a conversation right up front and this lovely chap said, you know, we, I really think we need to land this with our employees better. And about three people around the room just looked at me and I thought, oh, they read oh, my it's, blog. It's a trigger word. And it was a trigger. And they were just looking at me and I thought, I've got to call it out. And I said, really interesting use of the word land there. What do you mean by that? And then he described what he meant. And it wasn't it wasn't communication getting through. It was information giving out. And I said, the reason you've probably picked up on the tension in the room is I've just blogged about this and it's a real bugbear of mine. And then throughout the course of the day, bless him, two or three times he said it and then he was like, I keep saying it. I can't stop it. <laughs> just keep saying it. But now he's aware he was changing the words that he was saying. And he said, you're right. And the way that I talk to my team and the way that we talk in our organisation mm. is about landing a message. It mm. isn't about... What do information do we need to share with employees and how do we check? How do we check that it makes sense, that they yes. know what's expected and they're going to act on it? Yes. So that is it. Yes. I really don't like it. And I and I I don't like it because it doesn't help us if we're trying to be more strategic and we're trying to measure communication and we're trying to check for understanding particularly and check for recall. If you're just landing something, it's not enough. It's funny because it's... Um, I mean, I wrote a blog myself not that long ago, which was, I think it was entitled something like throwing paper aeroplanes in the dark. But it was that thought that you were just chucking out messages, throwing them in the dark. You had no idea whether they were being seen, received, heard, picked up, read, acted upon. But it reminds me of my very early days in IC. Now, this is going back a good 30 years. So, yeah, we've got to be a bit careful here. Um, before some listeners were born. <laughs> Let's be honest. But success, I kid you not, was silence. Success was no one complained. So when we said that went out, thank goodness that, you know, that went out and that landed okay. It meant I haven't heard anything because if I haven't heard anything, Mm. no one's complained. That's Uh, so so interesting. I have an unofficial 20-minute rule. So when I was in-house particularly, I still do it now when I send my newsletter out. Within 20 minutes, you'll hear if you've spelt someone's name wrong. <laughs> and it's a really unscientific test, but it has set me in good stead. Within 20 minutes, you know if yes. you've captioned a picture wrong or done the wrong thing, you, you hear. And after 20 minutes, it's normally okay. But that's interesting, isn't it? So, so that's telling us that, actually, people will speak up pretty quickly. 
when you've done something wrong, when you've made a mistake, even if it's a very small one. And I've noticed in IC, I mean, if ever we employ writers who've come from a marketing or external media background, I'll say, do not think that this is a soft option because on the agency side, you you spell the CEO's name wrong and we could lose the contract. So actually... Standards matter. You'll find our chief sub is really, really very good. It has to be because we can't print an apology in the next edition. That doesn't work that way in mm. in, in, in IC. But yeah, you're, it's so interesting. So people will speak up if there's a big problem. That's your point, isn't it? How do you make sure that they're responding and giving you feedback as quickly as possible? But you have to work quite hard at doing that because it's not necessarily, people aren't necessarily doing it naturally. Yeah, you do, I think. So when I run my internal comms masterclass, which is basically for people who are new into internal comms, we often talk about feedback and how do you know if you're doing a good job? And I I will share the example that within 20 minutes, you'll know you've done something wrong. And I will also say, conversely, don't expect people to get in touch and go, oh my goodness, thank you so much for writing that amazing email newsletter. People hopefully will give you feedback like that, but don't, don't think that they will. Yes. And I don't want to say that and put people off, but it's the reality, you know. It's very often we hear when things have gone wrong. We don't hear, thank you so much for that poster. It was yeah. great. Or that yeah. town hall agenda was really spot on. I see what you're trying to do there. It doesn't work like that. So I think, for me, the feedback and the and the, the good stuff about internal comms is you're checking for understanding with employees constantly. You're measuring constantly. You're gathering anecdotal feedback to know whether aspirationally you know the objectives of your channels are working yes don't wait for a within 20 minutes we're going to get loads of wow thanks for sending that yeah you've (laughs) got to work hard to get out there and ask people you do but I think it's human isn't it you like you like to be praised for doing a good job you like to know when you've made a difference to people you like to I've got a wall behind us I've got a wall of positivity which is lots of very positive quotes um and I've got I feel a bit like a dentist (laughs) In the corner, I've got a little wall of thank you notes. Um, so on the corner of my my pegboards over there, I've got thank you notes of people who have worked with me and said thank you, because it means so much. When someone says thank you, it means so much. So when you're working with leaders particularly, I try and feed that back to my stakeholders that I'm working with. To, when they've stood up at a town hall and put themselves out there and they want to know how they did and they're waiting for the, has anyone got a complaint? Did I do anything wrong? I make sure that I express gratitude to them and say, you did a really good job. I know that was really tricky and you weren't quite sure how, you know, how it would go down, but you did a great job. Yes. You didn't say land. So didn't say land. <laughs> <laughs> I drained myself out of saying land. People like to know they've done a good job. So mm. I think mm. if you're trying to influence and negotiate and work with stakeholders, make yourself accountable to them. You know, mm. as a professional communicator, give them feedback. Thank yes. them yes. when they've put themselves out and been very visible and, and vulnerable in front of your organisation, particularly during change comms. Yes. For me, that's what earns the currency of trust as being a trusted advisor and strategic counsel mm. is you affirming their behaviour mm. and appreciating mm. them when they've stepped out of their comfort zone particularly. Yes. I think that's a really good thing for internal communicators to do. Yes, and a handwritten thank you as well means so much as yeah. well in this virtual age. It's quite do, interesting. I do that for all of my masterclasses. So every single person who's been on a masterclass with me since 2016 has received a handwritten thank you note within a week of their course and mm. make a point of writing to them. Love stationery. Is <laughs> any excuse to buy stationery? Um, because it would be so easy for me to send an email and say, thanks for coming to the masterclass. But for me, that personalised, handwritten, and people all, not always, people regularly get in touch and say, 
I'm really shocked that you wrote to me and, and I've kept it and it means a lot to me. Or I've had people get in touch who attended a masterclass years ago to say, we're clearing up my desk and I just found your note and I thought I'd check in with you. Oh, how lovely. And yes. it's so nice because it yeah. continues the conversation because it doesn't take long to do something very personal, but it's it has a really profound effect. I know how I feel when people do the same for me and take the time to you know, communicate in a really personalised way. It feels different. So where you can, you know, look for opportunities to do that, I think. It works. I can imagine it being very powerful with leaders who have got a lot on their plate and, you know, have to have very broad shoulders. And suddenly you're saying, you're just calling out fantastic achievements or behaviours or wins or successes. And they must think, oh, thank goodness, someone's not come to me with another problem, but yeah. something I've actually done quite well. Uh, must be lovely yes. to reaffirm that. Yeah, I think that must work so well. Let's turn a little bit to content. And I asked this from quite a selfish viewpoint, really, in a way, because after maybe an initial big audit, a lot of what we do, probably two thirds of our work, is actually content and creating that and distributing it across various different channels and platforms and trying to feed in uh, or create feedback loops around that. I just wonder if you've got any observations about content, where that's moving, how that's developing in the IC world. Traditional internal comms content is still there. So people are still sending formal emails from CEOs, um, even though we get feedback saying there's too much email and we must reduce it. I think the fallback position is still being quite traditional in in many organisations. I think in terms of content We've talked about this before, about curation of content, where it's not just content that we are creating, but other people are, and we are curating that content. I think I'm definitely seeing that more. There's much more user-generated content or employee-generated content. I hate the word user-generated. just sounds so detached. Employee stories, employees sharing sharing their thoughts. So I think in terms of content inside organisations, when I'm analysing and auditing, I agree that it's not just content that's created by comms pros Mm -hmm. actually we need to include stories and vlogs and videos that employees have also generated that's part of the fabric of the way an organization communicates so in terms of the content that i'm seeing there's lots more categories coming for award entries around video Mm. and audio particularly the rise of podcasts has been quite extraordinary since since our previous conversation in the internal comm space as well as inside organisations where people are trying it out so Deloitte's green room is is fantastic they've come they've blogged me about it Kayleen Duckett there and the team and Matt Gale and the team they're doing a great job so the content we're creating is a bit different yes content that we're encouraging and curating is a bit different but I think I'm always cautious about the noise and I'm always cautious about yes. we, we could do a blog and we could do a vlog and we could do a podcast and we could do a video and we can have a chatbot. You can do all manner of things. You can do voice, <laughs> which we talked about last time we were together. I'm still seeing very traditional content. I'm mm. still seeing people relying on their traditional mechanisms and techniques for their organisation because they work. Right. So they dabble in certain things and they try things out. I'm a big fan of piloting. You know, yes. try something, pilot it. If it doesn't work, readjust, pivot, come back. So I think the content we're creating is we're having to let go a bit more. Yes, I think you're right. That's we're exactly having to right. just, and it's not about letting standards slip, but we're having to say if we want authentic communication to come from employees in their own voice, 
you need to let a few things slide. And that's been really hard. Mm. So I blogged a few years ago about wonky communications and you know, <laughs> misshapen communications, which aren't polished and perfect in the way that we would do it if we were doing it as you know, a professional comms team or, or communicators would do it. But that's okay. Yes, yes. So I'm yes. starting to see the conversations I have in masterclasses, particularly around standards and tone of voice and how do you get that balance right between encouraging employees to create content, stories, articles, mm. blogs, mm. but when they do it in their own voice, you can't go back in with a red pen. No, exactly. So you have to, for me, that comes down to having advice and guidance, toolkits, templates, top tips, you know, one-page sheets of, you're very welcome to make your own video. Here's here's our advice and guidance. Yes. This is how we talk about our people. Does it stop the world if you say staff, not employees, or colleagues, not exactly. partners? I, yeah. I think it's hard because we try to champion those standards. But yes. When you give freedom yes. to people, yes. <laughs> they are going to make some of their own rules. So I'm seeing that and I'm, I'm having conversations around how do we have a consistency of approach, Yeah, but trust our employees to create their own content. And my advice is you need to let it go. Yes. I, you so need to pick your battles. Yeah, absolutely. So I had a CEO on the podcast from a big infrastructure company who's very keen on internal content going external on LinkedIn mm-hmm. or Twitter. Or, you know, and the other day, he retweeted a picture that someone else had posted from his organisation. And as well as celebrating the success of this uh, infrastructure project, he said at the end, and spot the health and safety mistake. And it was someone who didn't have the high-vis jacket done up. Mm-hmm. Now, normally, you're right, in an internal comms world, if it had been an agency that had done that, we would be photoshopping I did that. that. <laughs> we had to, yeah, you're, you're photoshopping um, high-vis vests up. And actually, yeah. the conversation should be, why don't our guys know, exactly. or our workforce know, that they yeah. should wear their pe- personal yeah. equipment PPE in the right way? Yeah, yeah. That, res- that really resonates with me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's the way to do it. The yeah. way to do it is, is to acknowledge it, because that's authentic, but also yeah. say then, and spot it. So everyone is thinking, oh, yeah, I do that too. And I know I shouldn't. So relaxing the rules slightly, knowing what the rules are, I think you're absolutely right. You can't give people freedom and then tie both hands behind their back, can you? you have to... <laughs> no, and I think you know, there is a difference for me in saying employees over staff. I, I prefer employees or people over staff because staff just feels really hierarchical and just jars with mm. most, the most cultures that people are trying to champion in their organisation. So you do need to pick your battles. Mm, mm, you really do. And, mm. and I think part, you know, people are trying to be more strategic and they're trying to be less reactive and they're trying to be more proactive as comms functions. But spending all their time going back through employee-generated content and correcting things and mm. restricting them and you're giving them that freedom, as you say, but then tying the hands behind their back. Guess what? Next time around, they're not going to do They're not going to do it. No, you're absolutely right. So if right. you're trying to shift to a conversation space where... You know, I, th- I think of enterprise social networks particularly as, as conversations owned by the organisation. So if a conversation is owned by the organisation, you can't then have the comms team going and mopping up. Yes. <laughs> and going, yes. by the way, yeah. FYI, next time you post, can you do X, Y, Z? I, I, you need to allow the wonkiness to come through. Mm. If you go on Twitter now and you, you look at hashtag my raw mail round, for example, and you get these beautiful pictures of people everywhere across the UK doing, nice. doing their rounds. I mean, that, and, and sometimes I'm sure, you know, maybe they're not perfectly shot or whatever. You mentioned Kevin earlier, uh, Dr. Kevin Ruck, and he's, he's written extensively about employee voice and informed employee voice. Yes. And when you're thinking through these sorts of channels and, and mindset for how we want organisations to communicate, you're trying to encourage 
informed employee voice that's the whole mindset is you're trying to amplify people's voices if you're then going back in and editing and, and yeah. refining and, and tweaking you it's not really their voice they might as well be puppets yes and that's yes a key distinction there's a key difference there they're doing the walking but you're doing the talking you can't do that yeah you no you can't do that and then champion authentic employee-led communication mm. and then go in and mop up you can't do that so mm. It's, it's something to bear in mind. It's something, it, and that is just going to keep on increasing. If we were sat here in 10 years' time, I think the content from employees would be more and more. I, I saw an article the other day where there was a pushback on the term content. Everyone's talking about content. Oh. And I think it is a marketing mindset. Oh, yes, you know, when yes. we talk about content, when I think about content, it's everything inside the organisation. Yes. It's stories it's the the videos it's the the stuff that is created and the things that are being said and shared so expect you know a pushback probably in a few years time of of anti-content but I I think that the mindset has to be what's what are the conversations that are going on how can we package them up and share them internally externally so people get a sense of who we are how we work our culture and hopefully are attracted to our organization and stay in our organization yes So personal aspirations and things that might be happening in 2020, I just, on two levels really. So I wonder from a personal perspective, if you're happy to share what a sort of a personal aspiration for the year ahead. And also in terms of the development of the profession, what might have piqued your interest lately? If there's something you're quite curious about and you're thinking, I'd like to dive into that a little bit more. So on both those levels... So personally, for me, I'm turning 40 in September, which is a bit of a milestone, so people tell me. Um, so I, I think it's making me reflect, and it's making me look at where I am, where I'm at in my career, and it's making me look at how I am as a, as a mummy. And I'm proud of the work that I've done and the balance that I've finally managed to achieve in work-life balance with, with my children particularly. So personal aspiration for me is to get the ideas that have been bubbling in notebooks and in my head for a long time with online masterclasses to really bring them um, to the front now because I lost so much time last year with the wrangling over the previous office space five months of really quite very stressful yes very very stressful it took up all of my energy and 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 my capacity and mental health certainly and this year now is consolidating where I'm at in terms of yes. you know the all things I see hub and love working here and now it's how do I extend the hub out virtually to people who can't come and work with me here in person those aspirations that I had when we talked at the end of uh, 2018 early 2019 are still there yes and it's important to me that I make them happen so I've been doing videos in here I've been doing lots of films for the online masterclasses and using this space so I'm getting there so aspirationally for me personally is to believe that I can do it yes I've been getting in my own way I need to continue believing yes and getting to the end of this year with a launch done hopefully or very nearly done for me personally is I need to do that I want to do that the market is there people are asking me and I admitted it on your blog, on your uh, <laughs> podcast, sorry. So I have to, I have to, <laughs> have to, to fulfill it. that promise to myself and to other people. And then I think in terms of profession, I'm having more conversations about automation and I don't feel like I know enough about uh, the impact of automation on our workforce. And I've done a couple of automation strategies, uh, which isn't the robots taking our jobs, but kind of. Um, and the advice I've been giving to clients is around, you know, you need to unlock the 
the good things that happen inside of organisations when you have machines doing people's jobs, you know, what happens as a result? What do you unlock? And it's human right. potential, human capability. So I don't really want to go down a massive rabbit hole of AI and VR and all these other new phrases and mm. words that have mm. been around for a while. Mm. Um, because I feel like that could distract yes. me and I feel like I could absorb a lot of time. But I'm conscious that those are conversations I'm having more with clients Yes, asking for advice and guidance. So I'm doing quite a bit of reading around it. It is interesting though, because I think, well, first of all, it isn't just the, the more manual jobs that are necessarily at most at risk. My hairdresser says he's never going to be replaced by a robot because you're never going to get such a sophisticated machine Mm. to do something that actually, per head, if you like, doesn't cost that much. You know, so there's no real um, competitive drive to create a robot that could cut hair. But I am seeing in organisations mid-level, for example, finance executives Mm. who are easily, unfortunately, replaced by certain cloud computing software programs, x-ray departments where you can get a machine to read an x-ray. I mean, that's that's a worry. So these are actually professional skilled people who are potentially at risk of automation. Mm. You would like to think we would move to an era where what our what the human brain can do then is more becomes more important. Yeah. So that sort of taking two seemingly quite opposing ideas, moulding them together to create a third fresh idea uh, you know that yeah. that kind of thinking and creativity yeah. is going to come to the fore but I don't know I think the the, the wording really concerned me in, in something that I was asked to read and I'm very glad they asked me to read it it said the mundane and repetitive tasks are now going to be replaced by this machine and those mundane and repetitive tasks have been paying people's mortgages yes and that's their jobs yes so for me the the kind of warning there for me is around how we communicate in language that is appropriate right I mean, it's not it's not inaccurate. You know, it, mm. it might be that actually it is a mundane repetitive task to do data entry or, of some sort of thing that can be replaced by a machine. But be mindful mm. that mm. that task might be someone's whole job. Yes. So I think there's there's a there's a you need to join the dots really between the language that we use to describe what machines can do versus that's a person's job. Yes. And that's in their livelihood, and that's probably paid their mortgage and you know yes. fed their kids, for example. So I think. For me, why that interests me, and particularly thinking about automation, is how do you communicate automation? How mm. do you communicate in a way that's sensitive, that mm. draws out? So I was, the advice I was given was, you know, what, what's unlocked as a result of freeing up some people's time? Yes. If they're not losing their jobs as a result of the machine, but they're still there, but able to do, you know, more creative things, yes. more innovative things, what is it that... So I challenged the client to say, what is it that those people can now do as a result of the more mundane repetitive, which we rephrase? Um, what does it unlock? What yes. does it allow them to do? And that's the mindset for me. And we're not talking a lot about that in internal comms, really, of how mm. to communicate automation. It's been around for years. Mm-hmm. It's not really that new, but I think it's becoming more prevalent in organisations yes. and therefore it's more... It's something for internal communicators to be mindful of. And and for me, the watchword there is, is the language, is the mm. how you describe the tasks that are now being automated mm. and being mindful that those tasks have been someone's job. We can move very quickly, if that's okay, to, um, it can be quick for the in terms of asking the questions, not necessarily answering them, to a new set of quickfire questions. I noticed. Just to keep you on your yeah. toes. We're not allowing you to, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm afraid these are new ones. So what are you reading and or listening to at the moment? 
So I love Holly Tucker. Holly Tucker is the founder of Not On The High Street. And she has a podcast called Conversations of Inspiration. And I cannot get enough of it. So I'm a fangirl of Holly. I think she's fabulous. She, her whole ethos and mission in life is to support um, small businesses. So she set up notonthehighstreet.com, which is, you know, the, the powerhouse really for individual kitchen table businesses, people creating stuff, sell through this platform. She identified that years ago. She got, I think she got CBE for it years ago and been really recognized. But what she does is, is she's encouraging entrepreneurs to learn from each other. And as an entrepreneur myself, I love listening to her conversations of inspiration. So she interviews people. There's a chap I was listening to the other day, the founder of Mulberry, who is describing how he developed the business. And I learned so much from that. Wow. I'm so inspired by that. I'm so inspired by the conversations. And her Instagram feed is beautiful. And, and it just has lots of the ethos for this month, particularly being International Women's Day, is about female founders and female-founded businesses. So that taps into where I'm at and mm-hmm. you know, as a female business owner um, and feminist. And I just love, I love listening to her asking people about their stories and learning mm. from other entrepreneurs. So Conversations of Inspiration by Holly Tucker is a great listen. Fantastic. We will put that in the show notes. So if you could have any three people, alive or dead, over for dinner, who would they be? So number one would be my grandma, Daisy. She died when I was 10. Uh, my, my Welsh grandma, she had such a profound effect on me. Just the most gentle, beautiful woman. Um, I named my daughter after her. She is an incredible, was an incredible woman and still feels very present in, in our lives. I would love to sit down with her and tell her about new generation, you know, the, the child that I've named in her honour and the impact that, obviously emotional, sorry, <laughs> the impact that she had on my life, you know, even though she's been gone nearly 30 years. Um, so my grandma Daisy, 100%, which is first on my list, um, Second be Barack Obama. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's going to be an interesting we conversation. Can't have a conversation. <laughs> and I can't talk about that. Oh, we're really emotional. Sorry. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm just remembering my granny. So <laughs> you and I are both now got tears in our eyes. Sorry, listeners. We're going to try and pull it together for the I last few moments. I told you. People come here and cry. I told you. Um, so Barack Obama, because oh, he's just the best communicator, and and love him. I think he's fabulous. Uh, my husband noticed recently that he follows me on Twitter. Wow! I know, I know. I don't know when that happened. There's a way to find out, but that's quite that's, that's quite unusual. Goodness I mean, he follows me. loads of people, but I, I, that was that is a one, proper claim to fame, why. Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think he'd have a, I think he'd have a great crack if he was with my grandma. I think they're they're done fun. <laughs> and the third person there is Maya Angelou because I've got a big quote on the wall: "Nothing will work unless you do." And that for me is about it is about your mental health and well-being, but it is about how you show up and how you work. And it is just such a quotable, amazing woman. And I think the three of them, I can imagine that would be <laughs> such a vibrant conversation. It would be a pleasure to, to witness. So yeah, my grandma, um, Barack Obama and Maya Angelou would be my dream dinner date guests. 
What I'd like to do, if I may, is invite my grandma to that. So Nana Hilda, oh, who's been it. dead many years, but was a very wonderful woman. I, I didn't have girls, so I couldn't name them after her, but I named them after her husband, so my grandfather. Nice. So um, when you were saying that, that was why I was also having a little moment. I'm going to give you a superpower now. So what would that superpower be? So I think to fly. I would love to fly because my brother lives too far away from me and I'd love to see him more. He lives up north, he's four hours away and I would love to be able to fly, to just see him whenever I wanted to at an instant, to, to be with him would be wonderful. Um, I just like the idea of, like the idea of flying around. <laughs> I think it would be great. Why not? Um, I think, yeah, I just think to fly would be incredible. It's a thing that you can't ever imagine being able to do. So seeing as it's a superpower flying what's been the best gift you've ever received see I thought about this when when I got your questions I thought about this and I felt like I should probably say my children because they're an amazing gift and particularly my twins whenever I tell people I have twins they always not always regularly say I really wanted twins Oh, As right. if I've got some kind of magical power, I can just go, <laughs> bless you, my child, I'm going to gift you twins. Um, I always wanted twins as well. Um, so that, you know, having, discovering I was pregnant with boys was a shock, um, and but an incredible gift. From a professional point of view, I think it was the invitation to work with Lego. That's been an aspiration of mine for as long as I can remember. And as a gift to be invited to work with them on their internal comms, was amazing so amazing I, I celebrated wildly I, I, bought, I bought Lego actually it's now I celebrated so I do when I, when I sign I now I now when I I leave it in groups now when I sign five clients I let myself buy Lego because you're getting a bit crazy um, but that for me was I'm really proud of that there's something where I use Lego. You've, you heard me talk at the IOC yes. conference about I use it for mindfulness and, and my me time. And to be invited inside to work with them, I was really proud of that because it demonstrated a, a level of trust that is really important to me. And finally, I'm worried that you may never actually be on Desert Island Disc. <laughs> we can't say you won't, but I'm going to get there first, if I may. And actually, I did look up when the show started, 1942. I can't believe it's Gosh. been going for that long. But anyway, you are stranded on your desert island and you already have, as we know, the complete works of Shakespeare and the Bible. But you're allowed one, and they say disc, which I think is hilarious, <laughs> just shows it was started in 1942. You have one disc, one book and one luxury. So what might they be? See, I felt like I should have something really highbrow, but I'm not. I'm just going to be honest. And I will say, I love house music. So <laughs> we have no CDs in my house. Everything's digital. So if I could get, <laughs> get a CD uh, of, of house music, that would make me very happy. Fantastic. Love house music. Um, my book, I, I think to be there without my babies, without my, my family and friends would be really hard. So my book would be a photo album yes. of friends and family because this, yeah. They're so important to me and I couldn't imagine if I can't be with them in person, I'd want to look at images of them. And then for my book, and you'll be very surprised by this, with my, I don't think I've mentioned that I'm a stationary fan. <laughs> it would be a notebook and pen. I, I need to write. So if I'm stranded somewhere and I can't write and doodle and, you know, mind map, I would get really bored and I don't want to get bored. So, I mean, I've got the Bible and Shakespeare to read, but I would need a notebook and pen. 
Fantastic. We are giving you that as your luxury as you sail away (laughs) to your desert island. Rachel, it's been, as ever, an absolute honour, a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you so much for appearing on the show. You're very welcome. Thank you. (laughs) So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms podcast. If you'd like the show notes to this episode, head over to AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk. We have a special section on our website dedicated to the show. While you're there, you might like to sign up for our regular IC newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. During this crisis, it's probably a great way to keep up to date with the various bonus episodes that we're going to be putting out of the show, plus other news from the world of internal comms. If you did enjoy this show, I would be immensely grateful if you could rate it on iTunes, because I'm told that's the best way of making us more discoverable for other IC pros that might find this content helpful. And perhaps you'd like to blog about it or share it on social media. That would be amazing too. We do have some great guests lined up for you, like Shell Holtz and Bill Quirk. I do recommend you hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast platform. All that remains is to say, stay well. Thank you so much for listening. And until we meet again, lovely, lovely listeners, remember... It's what's inside that counts.